Good morning. We welcome everybody. And uh, this seems a little loud to me. Is it loud to you guys? There, he's, uh, he'll turn. <clears throat> We're starting a new, uh, new book of the Bible. I appreciate so much uh, the teachers that we have and uh, really enjoyed uh, Ryan's, um, Ryan's uh, class and lessons here over the last weeks. And I am not <clears throat> the polished teacher that uh, most of the rest of them are by any means. <clears throat> Excuse me. But uh, we're going to start in Romans, and I always like to start with a little background. And I think uh, the background that we'll have here for Romans, uh, there's many of the things that we'll see there that will follow through the book, because it's kind of a unique book that uh, we have with the author being Paul, and uh, written to the Roman church. So um, let's open with a word of prayer. People are pretty well settled in. Father, we just thank you for this day. We thank you for the time we can gather together. We thank you, Lord, for the fellowship of the saints that we can enjoy uh, throughout this day. And we thank you, Lord, for the local church, um, your, uh, your, your own choice to supply a local church for us in these days. And, Lord, I just pray that we would not take these things for granted, realizing that uh, uh, Satan is a... Uh, is, uh, enemy that's uh, uh, bound, determined to destroy the things of God in this world. We thank you, Lord, that you had the victory in Jesus Christ and that we have the victory in Jesus Christ. We ask, Lord, that you be with us through this, these uh, lessons in Romans. I pray, Father, you'll guide our thoughts and uh, delivery and that you'll guide the, the, hear, the hearers of the word here and that it'll be a meaningful experience for all of us. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So as we look at the book of Romans, we're going to uh, try to cover the introductory plus the first seven verses of Romans. So I'm going to break it down into to two simple things. One is going to be, part of the introductory is going to be the author, Paul, and who he is and how God used him. And then we'll also deal with uh, uh, Rome itself and the Roman church and uh, have uh, some background information there. I think that's going to be, as I said, meaningful through the whole Lesson time. So the author is Paul, and we see right in, the, in chapter 16, verse 22, uh, this book was written, they said, on the, at the hand of uh, uh, Tertius, or Tertius, however you want to pronounce that. There's a couple ways that that's uh, uh, pretty well accepted. And he was a scribe. And Paul, uh, there's not, this isn't the only time in the New Testament that that is used where somebody will be the dictator or the, uh, the uh, dictator of the material and somebody else writes it down. And it's, it's neat when you see this because we see the author being honest about the whole thing. But we have the Word of God here in the book of Romans, and Paul is uh, the author. We also see, know of Paul that he is born in Tarsus. Now that's... Uh, neat here, because we're going to 
take a quick look at the map in a little bit as we look at his ministry. But Tarsus is located right here in Cilicia. And as you notice, and we'll... we'll that, that becomes uh, something that to me is very interesting as we understand God's use of men and how many times their backgrounds and their experiences come into play as God uses them for specific uh, ministries. And he was born in Tarsus. He is educated in Jerusalem under the, uh, under the Rabbi Gamaliel. Uh, why is that important? Because Paul uh, became a Pharisee. We know that he persecuted We're not going to uh, get into that. But his knowledge of the Old Testament and the knowledge of God's plan uh, up to that point for Israel was uh, very great. And Gamaliel is considered maybe the, the, the best instructor or teacher in Israel at that time. And that's who Paul stu studied under. And that we find in Acts 22. He also was converted on his way to Damascus, and that was shortly after Christ's crucifixion. So, you know, for, from a date standpoint, 33, 34 A.D., uh, would probably fit there. And the Acts chapter 9 uh, gives us that experience and how Jesus himself came and approached Paul and Paul fell before him and uh, asked the, the, the question that uh, uh, should be one that's asked by every one of us, Lord, what will you have me to do? As he, as he bowed to, the, to King Jesus, if you will, and recognized who he was, after that experience. And um, he also spent three years in the uh, uh, Nabataean uh, Arabia area, desert area, and we find uh, down here, here's the Dead Sea. And he spent three years there under the direct... Uh, uh, instruction of Jesus himself. Now that was, that was unique to Paul as an apostle. Now we know that he, he became an apostle uh, out of season, if, they, if, you, if you remember, because and I'm not going to turn to all these scriptures, but the other apostles were disciples of Jesus, and then they took on the, the ministry of apostleship. Uh, Paul was not. Uh, he was an enemy of Jesus, a persecutor of the church, but Jesus chose him to be an apostle out of season, and he chose him for a specific ministry. Now just think, um, we have an apostle here that's been trained under Gamaliel. He is, he is an expert in the Old Testament scriptures, in the history of Israel, and God's plan. He's an expert in those things. And yet God chooses him to go to whom? Primarily, the Gentiles. The Gentile ministry. And that's going to enter in later on as we get into this class a little further. But that's the ministry that God shows him for. And Paul wrote, wrote Romans, and, uh, uh, and we'll see that in, in chapter 16, verse 1. Paul is the author of Romans somewhere in that 56 to 57 AD. Now, just in a couple of minutes here, I'll, I'll, I'll tell you why I think. The, inter the, the dating is interesting. I've always had a, a, a kind of a passion for dating, the dates of writings and stuff like that in the New Testament. And, and the placement, I believe, has, has some meaning. 
I don't pretend to be the guy that's going to be able to mine that out. But there's a meaning for it usually. And uh, he wrote this in 56, 57 AD, and he wrote it from the area of Corinth. Over in here. That's the Corinthian church there. And he wrote it from there after his third missionary journey. Now, all three missionary journeys are showing on here. We're not going to get into those. Uh, that would be a... That, I'm not sure I could even do a good job of that, but it, it would be exhaustive to try to do. But he wrote from Corinth, and the person who delivered the letter to uh, the Roman church was named Phoebe. She was the deliverer of the, of the book of the letter of Romans to the Roman church. And she was a servant in the church in Sencrea. And you see Sencrea is listed right here, this area. You've got Corinth, you've got Athens, Sencrea, and that was a port. And there was a city, I believe, named Sencrea. There was a port city. But she, she delivered that letter back to Rome, and that'll show in a few minutes here uh, uh, how God uh, uh, brought that about also. So in his three missionary journeys, uh, which are you can read in Acts 13 through 20, we have the missionary journey, the first one. He's, he's commissioned by the church in Antioch, Syria. Uh, that's important because there's two Antiochs. But Antioch, Syria, he's commissioned by that church, and he goes to the area of Galatia. And we see Antioch at Pisidia, Iconium, Lystra, and uh, these, these uh, Derby churches in the area of Galatia that are established by Paul. And that's why I mentioned his birth being in Tarsus is interesting to me because that's, those, those cities are all neighboring where he was in Tarsus. Uh, I got to believe he had a great understanding of that area, and that area was a Gentile area. It was not a Jewish area. It was a Gentile area. Then from there, he goes on to Asia and we see him, uh, which is a Roman province, up here. And he established the church of Ephesus. We're all in that area. But this is specifically Ephesus. And then he travels from there over into Macedonia. And he establishes both the church of Philippi, way up on top, and the church of Thessalonica. And from there, he ends up on his third missionary journey, uh, the second time, in Corinth. And we know, we know the whole issue at Corinth, uh, the, the problems there. But Paul, at that time, at the end of his third missionary journey, anybody remember what his plan was? What his desire was? To go to Spain. And he wanted to go to Spain to establish... The churches in Spain, which is, is uh, again, west of Italy. Uh, so he, he had that plan for his ministry, but he had to deal with the whole issue at Rome. And why would that be? Because as he's going to go to Spain, he was depending on the Christians at Rome, way up on top there on the left, He's dependent on the Christians at Rome to do what? To help 
support, finance his trip to Spain. Now, we know that as he's sitting right now at Corinth, uh, before he goes west, he comes back down to uh, Jerusalem for the purpose of delivering what? There, the support. And you remember when we went through First and Second Corinthians, uh, which I taught, I don't know, that's a couple years ago or more, um, that he was, he was, uh, he was kind of, uh, when he wrote to the Corinthian church, <clears throat> he, he kind of was putting a little pressure on them to help finance uh, the uh, needs of the Jewish Christians in Jerusalem. Now, Corinth is a Gentile church again, primarily a Gentile church. And he said even the, 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 the people at Thessalonica gave out of their poverty for the collection for the Jews in Jerusalem, and he's challenging the Corinthian Christians because they'd be giving out of what? Their wealth for the Jewish Christians in Jerusalem. So Paul has this in mind now as he's looking at Rome, and he knows there's a church there, and, uh, and he's looking at that as a possibility, as a jump point when he goes to Rome for them to help support the work that's going to take, uh, take place in Spain by God's will. So Paul writes Romans at the end of that third missionary journey. Now, what's unique about, about uh, Rome and I already mentioned the, the finance thing, but what else is unique about that? Paul had never what? Somebody? He'd never been to Rome. Uh, he was probably known by reputation, but he himself had never been to Rome. So... We're dealing here with a situation where he is trying to, he's trying to prep or prime, if you will, the church at Rome for his arrival. And uh, also, um, uh, it's the, the book of Romans itself, as we go through Romans, we're not going to find there uh, where he's dealing with problems. If you remember when, when we went through Galatians and 1st 2nd Corinthians, uh, both those churches were loaded with issues that Paul was answering. Both issues he knew about, but primarily back to him or communicated back to him and questions about um, practices in the church. And some of them were very vile. We know at, at Corinth there was, there was sexual impurity going on and they hadn't disciplined the guy out. And we know uh, uh, also in Corinth there was a lot of... Uh, uh, there was a lot of issues of the division of people into the wealthy and the poor and the Lord's table, and that had become a, a mess. And he was writing to address those issues. We don't see that with Romans. So when we go through Romans, and one of the things that has been stated by church fathers all the way through is Romans is probably the most doctrinal book in the New Testament. It deals with church doctrine. And the doctrines, like what we've been going through with, uh, with uh, uh, Ryan Priggy. And, and uh, so we're going to find Romans to be uh, filled with, with that type of information for us. And um, so Paul is, is in the midst of, of making decisions on how he's going to approach. We know that ultimately he goes to Jerusalem, with, uh, uh, delivers uh, with others. He delivers the money for the Jews there. We know he gets in trouble there, he gets arrested, and ultimately he gets shipped to Rome as a prisoner. So he got to Rome, 
but that's as far as he got. Now, the Roman church itself, in Acts chapter 2, uh, anybody have uh, on, their, on their mind what Acts chapter 2 is about? It's uh, what happened after crucifixion. Pentecost. Now, in Acts chapter 2, with Pentecost, we see the speaking in tongues as the disciples are delivering the word of God. It's a, it's a miraculous occasion. And what, was, what, what were the people saying? Because now at, at Pentecost, we have Jews from all over that come there for the feast and the celebration. And what were they saying about these tongues? Yes, and that would be the Jewish leaders, and they were, uh, they, were, they were amazed because they said these Galileans are what? Galileans were considered to be kind of the downtrodden, the dumb people, if you will, of uh, the area, and yet the people were hearing what? The word of God in their own languages. And they're all listed there, and one of those that's listed there is um, uh, the, the, the listing in their native tongues, tongues is in verse 10, it says, visitors from Rome. So there were Jews from Rome who were there at Pentecost. They heard the gospel. I don't think it's far-reaching for us to surmise that they were part of the 3,000 that uh, were saved. And they returned to Rome with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that was how we would believe, I would believe, that the church at, <coughs> at Rome started was by these Christians who came back from uh, uh, Pentecost. And what a wonderful thing when you think about uh, how God used those men to speak and he used the ears of the people to all hear in their own dialect and they all got the same message and the response that took place. And then they go back to their homes with the gospel. And many of them we know started house churches. There's some that think in Rome that uh, being it was uh, all Jews uh, initially, that they probably uh, had uh, uh, one of the, uh, uh, what's the word I want, Eric? The Jews worshipped in the synagogues. Maybe had a synagogue, but they went back there and established a church. Now along with that at that time, we also see what the... Uh, uh, called the God-fears. And uh, Acts chapter 10, the story of Cornelius, uh, would give us that also. The God-fears, Gentiles who believed in the God of Israel as a true God, who also became uh, people in the early church. Now, it's not unlike what we saw in the Old Testament, where you'd see uh, uh, Israel, and when they, they met in the in the tabernacle, they, uh, they had the Gentile court. And we know Gentiles, there were proselytes that came in because they were God-fearers. They believed in the God of Israel, and they were welcomed into, in there. Well, we see the same thing happening here in the early church. Uh, these God-fearers, like Cornelius, become a part of the early church. So we see the church at Rome started, and I think, I think uh, we, most of that's documented scripturally. The idea that the people from Pentecost would be something that we would surmise because they were listed there as part of the group that heard the gospel in their language and responded to it. 
The character of the church would uh, drastically change, though. In AD 49, uh, Tiberius Claudius. Now, one time I thought we'd name one of our boys that name. I, I thought that was just such a unique name, Tiberius Claudius. I'm getting some expressions from my daughters-in-law over there that, glad I wasn't my husband. <laughs> but Tiberius Claudius was the emperor of Rome. And, of course, Rome was the capital city uh, in Italy, the emperor of the Roman Empire. And what was happening with the Jews who were saved there and the non-Jews, what do you think was taking place? A lot of conflict and fighting. And much like we saw even around the time of Jesus' uh, crucifixion, uh, the, the problems were taking place and uh, the Roman government wanting to uh, resolve these issues. Well, they resolved the ones in Rome. How do you think they did it? They expelled all the Jews. All the Jews had to leave. So now we see in Rome a Gentile church. Now, does that appearance fit Paul's ministry? Very much so. Very much so. He was the apostle to the Gentiles. So we see in that time that the Jews were expelled. Now, uh, later on, they're welcomed back in. But what happened then is you had saved Jews that were now traveling. And where do you think some of them traveled to? They came from Rome up here. They were, they were kicked out. They traveled, and some of them traveled to Corinth, where Paul was ministering. Uh, Priscilla and Aquila, Phoebe, the one that delivered the letter back to Rome, she would be involved there. And we see some of these, and, and others more than just those three, that actually, in some cases, show up different places that Paul is ministering at. And I think we can assume safely that they were a help and assistance to Paul in his ministry. So this, these people now show up in Acts chapter 18, and they're described as recently come from Italy. And Paul met them, and uh, uh, he became very close to these people, and there were messages going back and forth. Now I want to ask one question here. Um, when you hear the book of Romans mentioned, and please, there's no wrong, wrong answers here, but what comes to your mind as a theme of the book of Romans? What would you say? Let's have some other people answer then. We've had a couple answer several questions already. What comes to your mind as a theme? There's not just one, necessarily. Okay, saved by grace. What else? Anybody else? Yeah. Pardon me? We don't, have to sin. we don't have to sin. Anything else? General revelation. General revelation, okay. Anything else for a theme there? What did Martin Luther think it was? A J word. Justification, thank you. Any, anything else that somebody has? Okay, having a hard time with Jews? So, yeah, because 
my mindset has always been along the line of uh, such things as justification, uh, the Jew-Gentile issue, which uh, we see laid out in chapters 9, 10, 11, so we'll, we'll be covering that. And uh, there's restoration. Uh, there's, you know, there's a lot of different themes that go there. But here's one that, uh, for some reason, I, I never really caught. As many times as I've read Romans, I never really caught this. And part of it's because uh, I think when I go to reading, there's some things that we're so familiar with, we hear so much about, and we tend to pass over. Does anybody else do that? We just read the words and don't think. Anybody else do that? Man, I'll live and pastor, I'm all alone. Um, but the gospel, and in, verse, in chapter 1, verses 1, 9, 15, and 16, and, and chapter 2, 16, we see the gospel presented. And it's interesting because we see it named the gospel of God, we see it named the gospel of the Son, and we see it named my gospel, Paul's gospel. We also see the interaction of the Holy Spirit in there. So he's covering a lot of things. Now it makes sense because we're going to be approaching now the first seven verses of Romans, and that's his introduction. He has never been to these people. They know him by reputation, by testimony, maybe, but he's never been to these people. And he wants to make sure that he does a presentation of who he is and how he got there as thorough as possible. And he does that in the first seven verses of, uh, of the book of Romans. Now, who helped me come to that conclusion was Doug Moose. And uh, that's one of the books that I got. And Pastor really encouraged me to use that book, and I'm glad he did, because uh, uh, I, I really enjoy that book. And he came to that, that conclusion that the overriding theme of the book of Romans is the gospel. Now, everything else that was mentioned falls in there. Because the gospel is tied up in what? A person. Who's the person? Jesus Christ. So it's tied up in that person. We have to understand that. And um, we mentally maybe all agree with that and understand it. But I think, I think it's expanded. And we're going to see that expanded in the book of Romans. Along with a lot of other things that, that are going to be in this introductory and are carried throughout the whole book. So let me see if I can make some sense out of this for you. We're going to read the first seven verses. One of the things I want to start with, though, is uh, God has brought salvation to Gentiles as Gentiles, not as part of Israel in the Old Testament. And they are not under the sacrificial system. This is to make Israel jealous. Now, the first time I heard that said, it was Doug Bookman. And I, I confess, I'm a very much a fan of Doug Bookman. I really love the man, enjoy the man. Uh, I had him in class, and uh, if you said things right, he agreed with you. If you didn't, he rebuked you. I like that. I, I, I just don't like beating around the bush. I like things kind of face-to-face. -face. But they, you know, the whole thing here is, as we approach Romans, written to Gentiles, is to understand that Gentiles are an equal basis. Now, one of my favorite portions of Scripture, uh, Romans uh, uh, um, 10, 9 through 17, 
And one of the things in there says, there is no difference between the Jew and the Gentile. For the same Lord over all is rich unto all who call upon him. And you know what? We've got to keep that in mind. Now, I grew up uh, in, a, in an unsafe family, but uh, there was not what you'd call for the Jews. Uh, the, the Jew was, you know, was, a, was a label they put on you. If you tried to bargain too hard to get something down, you were Jewing people down. You know, things like that. My wife grew up in a situation much the same where there was that, that you know, today they'd call it a racist uh, issue. Well, it's, you can call it what you want. It's a sin issue. And it's a sin issue that's propagated by the unsaved. It better not be propagated by us. Because God sees them as equal. There's no difference between a Jew and a Gentile. We're all the same. And that's how God recognizes them. So that statement by Doug has always stuck with me. And another one by Doug Doug McLaughlin is this. God's most possessive attribute is his covenant-keeping ability. And the Old Testament was the covenant of Abraham. I've said this every time I've taught a class. Abraham... That was a unilateral covenant. It was made by God himself. Abraham was put to sleep. God parted the, the uh, parts of the sacrifice. He walked through and made a covenant with Abraham that did not rely on anybody. It was unconditional. Other covenants were conditional. If you do this, I will do this. If you do this, I will do this. What happened? People failed. That's where we get uh, some of the distinctions, all of them actually, in, the, in dispensations. There was agreements with God. People failed. God came with another agreement and another means that he approached people. And the Abrahamic covenant was the the one that varied. It was unilateral by God himself, and it was unconditional. We're still under that. The other is, the covenant, would be what? That Doug Doug McLaughlin would be uh, uh, alluding to here. And that that is the covenant, the new covenant, in Christ's blood. And just this morning, I heard about, you know, example, and we're going to see so many ties with the Old Testament in Romans. And there's reasons for that, but we're going to see a lot of ties there. But in the Old Testament, when the once a year, when the high priest went into what? The Holy of Holies. And he went in there to do what? Bring a for what? Sins of what? The whole nation. Just, I, I can't get my ra- mind wrapped around that way. I try to think that way. I just, don't, I just don't think that way. So he goes in there for the whole nation. And he comes to the mercy seat. And what does he do? Pours the blood on the mercy seat. What does God see when he looks at the mercy seat? He sees a covering. A robe, if you will. Of blood. And with that covering, God in his mercy, it's the mercy seat, God in his mercy does what? He forgives the sin of the whole nation. One problem with that. There's one problem with that whole thing. A year from then, what happens? They had to do it again. They had to go back. They had to come to the mercy seat. seat. They had to go through the same process. And I know there's a lot more to it, but we're not going to get into that deep. 
but the same process takes place until when? Until Jesus Christ. And his blood became a robe. Yes. Yes. And I was going to say, during the course of the year, that took place on a constant basis as people came for sacrifice for the remission of their sins. But that one time of the year when the high priest takes that, that blood becomes the covering for the nation. And Jesus Christ is that covering now. So what Doug is saying there is uh, the fact that um, uh, a, a truth that God has established these two covenants that are irrefutable. And his attribute of covenant keeping, uh, Doug would say, is his most uh, uh, possessive attribute. Also, the issue of truth. Now, in Bible school um, this year, I had the fourth through sixth graders. And I try to, I, I try to, I follow the general theme of the lesson. I don't want to repeat everything that pastor is going to repeat in here, so I stray off that a little bit. And the one thing I did every day, there was a Bible verse written. That I, they stayed on the board all week. And those Bible verses all had the word truth. I emphasize that because what are our kids exposed to? Even the uh, uh, Christian kids and uh, homeschool kids as well as public school is the question of truth because truth of Scripture is now being questioned in evangelicalism, and has been. Truth of Scripture. I talked to a fellow the other day in town here, uh, says I'm looking for a church, because where he's going to church now, they, they had a women's pastor. Hired. Now, is that part of truth? No. That's, that's falsehood. That's not part of truth. So we need to stress to our kids, but we need to stress to ourselves the issue of truth. That's what Doug McLaughlin is saying here. It is truth. That possessive attribute of covenant keeping is truth. And God is faithful, and his glory is on display throughout human history. And God's glory will be on display in the book of Romans as we work our way through that. Now I'm going to read the first seven verses here. And we'll see if we can tie this up in, in short order. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. That's an important statement. Which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh, and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. And then to those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints. So, Paul's writing this introductory, and, and stay with me. I, I was hoping to have another six minutes on this, but we won't. The first thing he identifies himself is a servant. What, is, what, what do you think of when you think of servant in the Word of God? What's a Greek word maybe some of you might think Slave. of? Huh? Slave. slave. Doulos. Doulos. Uh, he's a slave. 
Now, he's a, he's a slave, and what's the identification of a slave? They are bought from somewhere. And he identifies himself as bought back from the market of sin. He identifies himself as a slave to Jesus Christ. Now, that's something we should all identify with. And you think about that when we have our, our, our work days and our, our, our days between Sundays. Do we, do we, do we really uh, see ourselves as a slave to Jesus Christ? He, he, he deals with his authority. He's called an apostle. I know that it says they're called to be an apostle. Uh, I know so, I don't, I'm not a language expert, but some places I know that to be is added. It's just called an apostle. Paul's called an apostle. In Ephesians 2.20 he, he says this, fellow citizens of Ephesus, with the saints and, and members of the household of God, built on the foundations, uh, foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ, the cornerstone. And he talks about these people here as being set apart uh, for, the, for the good news of the gospel. And he says he is set apart for the gospel news. So Paul identifies himself, and he also identifies his authority. He's called to be an apostle, and he references both the Old and New Testament, the prophets, as well as the apostles, as the basis for his belonging in this field of being an apostle to the Gentiles. And we know in Galatians and Corinthians especially, even in Thessalonians, he is constantly having to fight to, to, uh, to defend himself as an apostle. Because the Jewish people are coming and saying, he's not an apostle, he's not a real apostle. He, he, he was the one who was, who was killing the Christians, destroying the church of God. And he's the one that, that uh, he wasn't part of the disciples, he didn't walk with Jesus, he's not an apostle. So that becomes an issue. And then the next issue is this, in verse 2 through 4. Now, how do you think... Uh, he talks there about which he promised before and through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, descended from David according to the flesh, declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of, of holiness by his resurrection. That's a proof text of his deity. And then he goes on uh, uh, to name Jesus Christ our Lord. So we want to finish those things up real quick here. The Old Testament New Testament. How was knowledge transferred in these days, verbally, <laughs> comedian. Now I don't know this. This is my opinion that this is one way. So I don't know this for fact, but it makes some sense to me. What was the first book written in the New Testament? Pastor just finished preaching out of it. Anybody over this side? Let me just repeat what they said. Say James for my own. James, the book of James. Who was that written to? To the dispersion, the Jews who were scattered abroad, who got saved and were ran out of their country, ran out of their home, ran out of their towns, ran out of their jobs. And they're, they're, it was written to them to encourage them. And then the next book, that was 47 A.D. about. The next book that was written is one that, that I taught the last time I was teaching in the New Testament, and that was Galatians, around 49 A.D. And Galatians was written, as we said, to that group of churches up in that Gentile area, an area that Paul knew about, but I'm sure was foreign to him, and I'm sure many times he looked over into Galatia and chastised these Gentiles 
But now, all of a sudden, he's writing to them. And he's instructing the Galatians on not only in his apostleship, but defending uh, Jesus Christ and defending the church to them. And not to listen to the false teachers. And then we go on, we have 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, and we have 1st and 2nd Corinthians, both written before, or in the early 50 AD, so before Romans is written, we know we have those books written, uh, the epistles. Now, there was, there was a fair amount of uh, travel that's going back and forth, especially from the area, area of Corinth to Rome, and by disciples of Paul. And I got to believe, other than just the Old Testaments, which they would have had, and the Jews in that area of Rome would, would be familiar with and know, that there's got to be information concerning these other letters that's being taken back to the church at Rome. To me, that just makes sense. Uh, they didn't have copy machines. They didn't have the Internet, like, uh, like Sue mentioned. But um, they did have means, uh, verbal means, and maybe there may be a, or some writings out of these books that, was taken, that were taken back. But he, he references here the fact that uh, there was promised beforehand by his prophets and the Holy Scriptures. And I believe they, they, they at least had some information coming from these other epistles. So knowledge was available concerning Jesus Christ. Now the other thing that we want to see here is the name. Because we see it listed there. Uh, concerning his son, uh, uh, at the end, in verse, uh, the sake of his name, in verse uh, 5, the sake of his name. We see that through the New Testament. The name Jesus Christ, or the Lord Jesus Christ, meant something. The words themselves meant something. And I'm going to skip somewhat ahead to get the, a, a main point here. And that's the issue of the obedience of faith. Because that is going to be throughout uh, the book of Romans. And I'm going to tie it in with the Lord Jesus Christ. But the obedience of faith that's listed here is important because there's different people have a different belief in that. Now, in John 1.12, and I've, I've become more and more attracted to that verse, uh, and I use it a lot in Bible school, because there's a lot of things that people say, and I'm not judging anybody that says, I found Jesus. Are they saved or not saved? But I have told people, well, more correctly, Jesus found you. Because who is the one who, who uh, starts the process of bringing you to Christ? It's Jesus Christ. And what does he use? The Holy Spirit of Christ, the Holy Spirit of God. So we see all three of the Trinity are listed here. But in John 1.12, it says, through, uh, um, through whom we have received, uh, pardon me, but to all who did receive him, who believed on his name, he gave the right or the power to become the Son of God. All who received him. We have to understand, and I think when we see his name here, the Lord Jesus Christ, we see him as King we see him as the Savior, the, the, the Rescuer, the Deliverer, the name Jesus, and Christ as the Anointed One. We see that name, our responsibility, and we've got to get this through to our kids. 
this easy believism doesn't work. They need to receive the gift of Christ's sacrifice. They need to receive it. That's what John 1.12 expresses. They need to receive the name of Jesus Christ and believe on his name. Now, Paul deals here with the issue of faith and obedience. And sometimes, and it's, it's kind of surprised me in some readings, where you see those two separated, faith and obedience. So look at verse 5. Through whom we have received. There's that received again. It's there, it's there a lot in the New Testament. Received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name. So that name, that, that word name is going to keep showing up. And it's the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. But faith and obedience, are they separate? Pardon? He says no. Anybody else? What comes first? Faith or obedience? Huh? Ah, Wayne. Ah, there. He said the chicken or the egg. He's right. He's right. We cannot separate those terms, I don't believe. Because if faith is genuine, it always has an outcome. It's obedience. Now you can say, well, there it shows. It has to be faith and you're obedient. They're interlocked. Any outcome stressed throughout Romans is going to show that faith is not exercised in a vacuum. It's a command to obey as, uh, as uh, bound up in the, in the fact of truth, true faith. So it's a command to obey. It's, it's interacting. We can say, well, we have to believe in Jesus Christ. That's, that's faith. And then we obey after that. But I, I don't think we want to separate the two terms. And I think there's text is what we see sometimes in our churches. We'll see somebody come into church, they'll give a testimony of salvation, they might even be really faithful for a time, but all of a sudden one day they're gone and you never see them again. And something interrupted their life or there's some excuse that's given. And I'm afraid sometimes it's because the obedience isn't there because maybe the faith was never there. A false profession. And Paul deals with that in Corinthians. So we have to, we have to understand that their two are linked. I think I have a proof text for that, too. And we, we also see that in the Old Testament. It's linked. But what does Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 tell us? For by grace are you saved through faith, that not of yourselves is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. We shouldn't stop there. When, uh, when we had memory work for VBS, a lot of kids knew Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. And if I was working with a memory, if not the first day, the second day, I said, okay, next you're going to learn verse 10. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. That was already ordained before. It comes with faith. There's got to be obedience. Uh, my class in VBS, I challenged them with that. Okay, if you made a profession as a young child, are you sure your obedience is following that profession? got to be interlocked, faith and obedience. And I think we're going to see that as we go through Romans. Paul consistently deals with that issue of faith and obedience. We have to ask ourselves, 
Where is our obedience? Where is our obedience that people recognize the faith that we say we have? Where is that obedience? I know when we were a young uh, married couple and first saved, we dealt with a lot of that in, in our home life, especially with my side of the family. Uh, it was just, and, and I maybe didn't handle it right, but I handled it right in accordance with what I understood as an early 20s young guy. But faith and obedience, they have to work together. Okay, let's close there. We went five minutes over, but uh, we'll try to stay on track uh, next week. Thank you very much.